but uh, for tonight we're in uh, chapter 44. Uh, so the last few chapters have been um, directed toward the people in Isaiah's future. So remember Isaiah, he's a prophet uh, during a time when Israel was split into two countries. Right? There's a northern and a southern kingdom. And he spent the, about the first half of the book talking about uh, some of the, the judgments that were coming upon them as a people. Um, you know, from the, some of their neighboring enemies and whatnot. And then in the second half, he's talking more uh, future. Uh, some, there's some judgment in there, but some hope. And we're learning more about Jesus, about the Messiah that's to come. And so he's been talking to um, the people who will be living in Babylon a hundred and some years after him, after his death. Because he knows that they're going to be taken captive. And, uh, and he wants the people that live in that captivity to understand what led them there, right? Uh, and so uh, he's making sure they, they understand that, that they basically the people had grown tired of God they, and de- started depending more and more on idols and on uh, relationships with neighboring countries and things like that to keep them safe rather than depending on God. And... So the last few chapters, God basically put the, the idols on trial. He says, you know, bring them into my courtroom and let's see how smart they are, how wise they are. How well do they hold up when a storm comes, these idols that you've built for yourself? And so there's, you know, there's a, quite a bit of reproach and judgment in this book, but that's not the end of the story. That's not, how, uh, that's not all that has, God has in store for Israel or for us. So he ended chapter 43 basically reassuring them that, um, yeah, this stuff is going to happen, but I'm going to bring you back and you're going to be my witnesses. You know, the, the restoration that I bring about in your life is going to be a, a testimony to everyone of what, uh, what kind of God you have. So all that being said, we'll get into chapter 44, but first let's pray, all right? Lord, we thank you this evening for um, giving us a place to gather together uh, freely to worship you, to fellowship, and most importantly, Lord, that we get to have free and easy access to your word, and and through that, we can know you better. And Lord, we, we all have our own preconceived notions and ideas, things we've heard and things we've seen on TV, and all of that kind of clouds our understanding. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us um, eyes to see the truth of who you are, and open minds and open hearts that would receive it and be transformed by it. Oh, Lord, we, uh, we, we just want to see what your word says simply and clearly, and through that, know you better. So we pray for your blessing on the message and on your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Isaiah 44, verse 1 says, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. You notice he gives two names for the same people, right? Because if you've got kids, you probably have multiple names for your kids, right? I'm not talking about their middle name. I mean, you've got the name you say when they're in trouble, which usually includes the middle name. That's how you know you really messed up when you hear your middle name out of your mom's mouth. Or you've got, you know, pet names and nicknames and stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, this, these are his children, right? So he's, he's using a few names. He says, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant, 
and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now that's a new one, right? We've probably not seen that one a lot. Um, and that one, it means uh, dear one, or dear upright one, or blessed one. Right? So it's, it's someone, it's an affection, it's like a poetic term of, you know, that you're dear to me. And, he, and he's basically calling them blessed or righteous, right? And they're righteous because of him. Now, what's interesting about that word, uh, we're going to get further than these couple verses, I promise. But uh, in the Septuagint, you may be, maybe you've heard of that before, or if, you, uh, if you've got a study Bible or maybe a Bible with footnotes, sometimes you'll see stuff that says LXX underneath the, a passage. That's just an abbreviation for the Septuagint, which is just a name for the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay. Why that matters is Hebrew and Aramaic and Chaldee are all very imprecise languages, Hebrew especially. Hebrew is very similar to English. Um, Greek is the opposite of that. Greek is very precise. And so when the translators uh, of the Septuagint, they went and they looked at these Old Testament passages and put them in more precise language is the idea. Now, some people can say, well, that's a translation of a translation, so it can't be good. Uh, but Jesus actually quotes multiple times from the Septuagint in the New Testament. So he basically gave us his stamp of approval that, yes, this is a good translation of what I said, you know. And so it, uh, in the Greek, or in the Septuagint, the word it uses here for Yeshurun or Jeshurun, uh, it gets used again in the New Testament a few times. Uh, and every time, well, other than once, every time it is used to talk about the church, about believers. And it's usually translated as beloved. Right? So, that was a really long way of saying, yes, he's talking about Israel, but yes, he's also talking about you, uh, and you're both his beloved So, he says, basically, even though you've messed up, right, you've, you've mistreated me, I formed you in your mother's womb. Right? And I chose you, and you are my beloved, the one that I want to bless. It's important to remember that, because when, when we are, feel distant from God, when we messed up, we can start to feel like, well, this was... I really did it this time, right? And he says, no, this, you're my child who I formed in the womb. I'm invested in you completely. Verse 3, he says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. So, 
We're going to shift gears here for a second because these four verses have a whole other life to them outside of this chapter. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 7, there's this scene that takes place. And it's the last day of the, of the great, it's the great day of the, uh, the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? And the Feast of Tabernacles was, had a couple of meanings to it. One, it was celebrating how God had give, you know, provided for Israel in the wilderness. But also looking forward to the time when God would dwell among us. Right? When he would, tab, tabernacle just means tent. Right? When he would have a tent here with us. And so during this feast, the, great, the priests every day would, would take these silver uh, pitchers to the, pill, uh, to the pool of Siloam, which just means sent one. We, we talked about that pool way back earlier in, in Isaiah. They would go to this pool of Siloam, and, and they would scoop water out of this pool, and they would pour it onto the ground each day to celebrate how God had given them water in the wilderness. Remember when Moses uh, brought forth water from the rock and all that? They were celebrating God's faithfulness and provision. And on the last day of the feast, there wasn't just any priest. The high priest would come out and he would take these same instruments and he'd dip or look like he was dipping into the pool. But then he would go to pour and there'd be no water. He'd pour this empty pitcher onto the ground. And as he did so, he would recite. We'll go back and read these four verses. Isaiah 44, verse 1. Throwing you for a loop back there, Nan. So the high priest, he would show that all the people have gathered around, they see that there's no water. And he would turn and he'd say, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Right? So he would recite this and they would go, yes, it's a dry time, but he promises that there's this time coming when he's still going to water everything. So he's looking forward to when the Messiah would come. And after reciting that, in John 7, verse 37, Jesus spoke up. It says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit whom uh, those who believed in him were to receive, but the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, he says, this, the thing that you're looking forward to, the one you're looking for, I'm right here. If you come and believe, you know, come to me, and that water you're looking for is going to spring forth from inside of you. 
And if you were to read on in that chapter, some of the people go, is this the great prophet? This must be the Christ. And a bunch of them say, let's kill him. That was the response. So they didn't receive him. uh, But when he comes back, we'll go back to Isaiah 44, verse 5. It says, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Right, so when Jesus comes back, um, sets up his kingdom, he says, this one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. In other words, everybody's going to want to be identified with this one that they rejected. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. So he reminds them again, look, I've told you things that were going to happen and then you saw them happen. I am the first and the last. I'm the God. And as far as I know, there's no other, right? But it raises the question, right? Because we do see mention of other gods in the Bible, right? False gods. So are there other gods or not? In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us a couple little insights on this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, it says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols... We know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. And then later, he goes on and he tries to clarify it a little bit more. Because there was some drama in the early church. Because, you know, the, the best way to get meat was to buy meat that had been sacrificed at the pagan altars. And some people were like, hey, you can't eat that. It's, it was offered to some false god. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19, Paul says, What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles uh, sacrifice, they sacrifice to what? To demons. And not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. He goes on to say, look, if, if you're fine eating it, it's fine. It's not contaminated uh, but if it's a problem for you, don't eat it. And if, if you have a problem with someone else that doing it, then keep it to yourself, basically. But he, he makes it pretty clear that these false gods, they're not actually gods, but they are fallen angels. They're demons. They want a little bit of what, we're, what we 
what is intended for God alone. Right? That was the whole point of Satan's um, rebellion in the first place. He, he wanted a little bit of what God got. So he says, don't fear because you, precious one, are made in, in God's image. And then he turns our attention back uh, to those who make God's in man's image. Right? Isaiah 44, verse 9. It says, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will not be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Right. So he says, part of why we even get involved in idolatry and is because we have some sort of short-term gain from it. Verse 11, Behold, all his uh, companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails, and he drinks no water and he becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like a form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. So he describes these people, they toil hard for these things to just put in their house. That's we're totally not like that at all, right? We don't toil all day long so that we can buy stuff to put inside our other stuff. Yeah. We wear ourselves out trying to build a life around a God of our own, right? A God in our own image. Rather than resting in the truth uh, that I'm made in God's image and I'm here for His pleasure, uh, He's not here for mine. Verse 14, though, it says, Surely he cuts cedars for himself, and he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow, and then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes makes it a graven image and falls down before it. So you think of what he just said. Think of the futility of this, right? We grow a tree... And he cuts the tree down. Part of it he uses to cook with. Part of it he uses to keep warm. And the other part he worships as a god. Verse 16. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and, and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. That's, those kind of verses can be troubling when you run across that. When, it, when you see times where it says that God hardened someone's heart. 
We see that uh, probably the most famous example is Pharaoh back in Exodus. There's four different verses where two times it says God hardened his heart, and two times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. So which was it? Well, God would present opportunities for Pharaoh to make a choice, and every time he chose poorly, he hardened his own heart a little bit more. And 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, says that uh, the God of this world, now this is not God in heaven, right? The God of this world would be the, that's uh, one of the titles that is given to the devil, right? This is his domain right now. It says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So yeah, the devil is at work trying to keep us from seeing the truth, but it's not all on him. In John 12, verse 37, we see Jesus, uh, he actually refers back to Isaiah here. He says, uh, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, uh, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. So that's confusing. But here's how I, I would break it down, I think, is every time you hear the truth about Jesus and reject it, it's like adding a little coating of plastic over your heart, like spraying, you know, spraying another coat over it. Uh, if you say no to Jesus enough times, it gets to be... Uh, pretty hard shell over your heart. And there may be a day when you don't care anymore uh, about the things of God. You, um, if you don't want to believe in God, God is not going to force you. But he, he does give everyone, the Bible tells us he doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to, to come to faith in him. But he's not going to force himself on you. So he, you can continue to harden your heart, um, and you can continue to say no to God. And one day, you'll cross the point where God will oblige you, and, and you can go into eternity apart from Him. Paul uh, talks about this a little bit more in Romans 1. Uh, I'm going to read a good chunk of this chapter. You guys are probably familiar with this, but he, he talks about the, the progression that takes place in the hearts of many people. Romans 1, verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's people who don't want to hear the truth. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. 
You guys have probably heard me say before, I do not believe in atheists. I think the Bible teaches every person knows there is uh, something higher. It's just a matter of they don't want to be accountable to him. Uh, Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. So therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. And if you were to read on, first he says that um, you know they became futile in their speculations, that they went from wise to fools, uh, that he gave, gave them over into their lusts, and then it later says he hardened their hearts. All of that was their own choices. But he kept giving them uh, the opportunity to make choices. And it goes on. We could spend a lot of time on this. Second Thessalonians 2 talks about how in the last days, uh, when most of the world is going to be taken in by a, a great delusion and choose to believe a lie rather than the truth because the world will love wickedness over truth. And I think we can see the early signs of that already, right? That people reje- are even rejecting the idea of truth, right? Like, that's your truth. I'm like, that's not how truth works, right? Something is true or it's not. You're talking about opinions, right? Um, but your truth is not my truth. That's not, that's just gobbledygook nonsense, Right? Uh, but it's the we're seeing more and more of that play out in our world. I'll get off that soapbox. Isaiah 44, verse 19. It says, No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it, that I make the rest of it into an abomination and I fall down before a block of wood. So he says, basically, no one can see the contradiction here that this piece of wood is now a god. To you. You know, you become like what you worship. And if you worship something dumb, you know, it, it, well, you do the math. Verse 20 says, He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver himself, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. You notice he keeps reminding them. He says, I have not forgotten, but I want, to, I want you to remember Israel, chosen one, blessed one, that I have redeemed. Right? He keeps reminding them of these things. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. Because remember, Isaiah is writing this section to the people who are a hundred years from then are going to be in captivity going, I've lived my whole life in Babylon. I don't even know what Jerusalem's like. We're never going back there. And God says, remember, I, the one, I, the one who formed you in the womb, have promised that you will come back. He gets, God gets a kick out of defying the odds and, and proving the wise to be fools. It's, uh, it's one of his favorite things, and it's one of my favorite things about him. But I like that he, he talked about uh, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners or you know people who tell the future. Um, what was the one lady's name that used to... Jean... Is it Jean Dixon? Is that her name? Nobody remembers? Hmm? Something like that. Yeah, the, she would, like, every year have her predictions. and Yeah. Apparently she was made a real impact, because none of us remember. But, but <laughs> I just remember as a kid, like, every year they would have all of her predictions for the year and, who, you know, what stars would get married and all this stuff. And I think she was, she probably had about a, 1.1% success rate, but she was famous, you know, for telling the future. Um, I, I went back and looked at a few predictions people made that I got a kick out of. Uh, here's one. It says, uh, it would appear we have reached the limits of what is possible to achieve with computer technology. That was John Van Neumann in 1949. Uh, I like this one. We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. That was Decca Records rejecting the Beatles in 1962. Um, <laughs> by the year 1982, the graduated income tax will have practically abolished major differences in wealth. That was a professor of economics at Columbia University in 1932. He was convinced that our income tax system would get rid of the income divide. That worked perfectly. And then the last words of Civil War General Sedgwick were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist." <laughs> yeah. Anyway, verse 27. Uh, it is I who says to the depth of the sea, Be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. 
and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. This is huge. Uh, Cyrus won't even be born for over 150 years, or 120 years, I think, from when Isaiah wrote this. And he calls him out by name. So Isaiah is writing in like 700-ish B.C. In 586 B.C., uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, conquers Jerusalem, and he takes the Jews captive back to Babylon. Um, And then Cyrus is the king of Persia, who eventually conquers Babylon in 538 B.C. So I guess it was almost 160 years. Um, and God calls him out by name here. He says, I'm going to send this guy Cyrus. In verse 27, uh, he said, It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. When Cyrus, uh, when he takes the city of Babylon, he actually like dams up the Euphrates River. It's part of how he gets into the city. We're going to get into that more because next week, or the next chapter, he spends quite a bit of time talking about Cyrus. Josephus tells us that Cyrus conquered Babylon and that he, he found out about Isaiah's prophecies about him and was so moved by that uh, that he made a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and, and rebuild their temple. So, we've talked quite a bit about this throughout the book of Isaiah, that one of the one of the main things that sets the Word of God, the Bible, apart from any other purported holy scripture is the existence of predictive prophecy. That the Bible would predict things and it came true. And this one is so accurate that people try to explain it away and say, well, they must have wrote this later. Right? They wrote it after Cyrus did this stuff, except the manuscripts don't support that. Or it must have been a different Isaiah, except... Jesus is clear and points out that it's the same guy. Um, now, we'll, we'll spend more time on that when we get into chapter five, 45. See if we can wrap it up, though, for now. This is, this is a shallow period in history, I think. You know, we're more self-obsessed than ever. And we've got more access to information than ever before. And we might just be dumber than ever before. Have you ever seen those, uh, you'll see it on the internet sometimes, where it's like this was the test to graduate fifth grade in the 1890s or whatever. And I'm in, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'm like, I can't pass this test, you know. Uh, Things have definitely uh, degenerated in many, many areas. But, you know, we become like what we worship, right? And so are we, that's what we're supposed to check ourselves on. Are we becoming more and more like the world, becoming more and more blind, deaf, and dumb? Like the people Isaiah was talking about. Or are we becoming more and more like our Lord? I'm going to read you one more verse and we'll close there. Isaiah 44, verse 22. He says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 
He bought and paid for you. You're very, very special to him. And he just wants you to spend a little more time with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this evening that, um, that you love us so, so much more than we can understand. God, we just pray that uh, the areas where we've been drifting, where we've been pulling away from you or distracted, that we would turn back to you. We would return to our Redeemer and, and just look full in your wonderful face. And let everything else uh, fade away. And let us be focused on loving and serving you. We know that if we seek you first, that you add everything else and that everything else becomes insignificant or falls in, into its proper place. So Lord, help us to reprioritize, refocus, and return. Lord, we pray uh, all these things in Jesus' name. We pray you come and come quickly. Everyone said amen. All right. Ready? Break. <laughs>